Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Foul play is over. It's time to put our hearts on the line with you. This is Foul Play. Foul Play, a new comedy thriller starring Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase in his very first motion picture. When, when you first saw me, what did you think? I thought you were a bore. I'm kind of a nice guy, and you're really a very lovely girl with or without your cleavage. And Kelly, what do you say? Would you like to take a shower? Andy, I'd like to start with this one big question, this big central question about our movie tonight. Foul play, Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, 1978. The question is, Andy, why is this movie so hard to find? Was it? It's nowhere. Well, I mean, I, I guess it's true. I uh, couldn't find it online, so just checked it out from the library. Um, yeah. I, I have a feeling this is one of those movies that, uh, you know, we talked about on our, we recently did our our uh, top 25 of the decade list, and we that was one of the talking points between, uh, or in one of our pauses, is talking about how some of this older content, even stuff from the 80s, it's just not being... Uh, released in any sort of digital uh, form. And it can be frustrating when people are trying to find these older properties to look at them again. And my fear is that a lot of them are just going to get lost uh, to time because not enough people are interested in searching back and looking at older things. Uh, actually, I did find it at the library. I also found it. Somebody had ripped it and put it up on YouTube. So uh, the link is in the show notes. It might be dead by the time you actually uh, get to it. Um, true, true. Yes. Uh, but uh, definitely count on your public library for some of these things because it's hard to find. It's not available on digital streaming uh, anywhere else. Foul play. So, all right. You had never seen this movie before. What would you think? I never had seen this movie before. In fact, I don't think I had seen any movies that uh, Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn had done together. Um, I, it just was not... I, I saw Goldie Hawn movies when I was younger, but I feel like I really kind of clicked in with her, I'd say maybe a little bit after this. And um, I'm trying to think what I would have seen. Probably like Protocol. Um, Private Benjamin. Private Benjamin actually would have been the first one that I saw. Yeah, And then um, uh, Protocol, Wildcats, Overboard, Bird on a Wire. Like there was that period in the 80s when I was kind of watching anything that she did. You know, I really enjoyed watching yeah. her. And then just kind of uh, I petered out. Uh, I think Death Becomes Her might have been. Oh, no, everyone says I love you, actually, I think. Might have been the last thing that I saw of hers. Um, No, I did see the Banger Sisters, but she's really slowed down. And of course, her cameo in the Christmas Chronicles. But um, I, this was one that just was never on my radar. And I don't know, I don't know why. It just, we didn't really watch these sorts of films, I guess. But I bet I had a good time with it. I enjoyed their relationship. I thought actually the the Chase Han relationship was was really nice. I thought they work well together. And I think that Colin Higgins, working first time here as the writer director, has a, another fun opportunity to kind of play with. Hitchcock uh, tropes and kind of do a a Hitchcockian sort of thriller and uh, allow the comedy to kind of come through. I I mean I had a lot of fun. I'm glad to hear you say that. Um, this is it's it's a 
a fun movie, to, I think, to revisit. My memory of it was completely shot as usual. And and I think it's interesting going back to these movies and watching, um, you know, when you see actors whose caricature of themselves and of, of the of who they perform is is so poorly defined at this point in their career. I think Chevy Chase became something different after like after this movie, you know, um, after his early TV shows, uh, after his SNL, he, he became kind of a caricature of himself. And in this movie, there are there are entire scenes where he's playing so straight. I, I don't know who he is. And I find him so charming. I find him. Uh, it's so strange to hear like no affectation in his voice, no punchline coming at the end of a few straight lines. No, um, you know, we, we see him playing the clumsy bit that becomes such a, a staple in his, you know, bag of bits uh, early in the movie. But generally he is not, uh, he's, he's not that clumsy guy, right? That's all. We're only just getting peaks of who that is, um, that, uh, you know, and who, who he'll become later that I, I find him super charming and magnetic and because of all the funny that came later, my memory of this movie was that it was much funnier, that it was much more of a straight comedy. And it's just not. It is that line between the thriller comedy. It's the it it's I think it it walks a very challenging uh, line to be both intriguing and uh, threatening and have funny things that happen in it. Did you find yourself suitably threatened? Well, I, I think that's what I, I find that Colin Higgins does really well with both Silver Streak and this film is he allows the story to not just be a straight up silly comedy with all of the stuff that's happening, but allows it to actually be a thriller and yeah. patterns himself really well off of the Hitchcock stylings that we see. Uh, we can talk about all the different influences that he found from Hitchcock, but I, I he he puts the thriller first. It's like he he crafts the story and then he says, okay, now let's find ways to to make some laughs in here and find the the comedy. And that's where I think that the strength of this film lies is allowing this to to kind of thrill first and provide the laugh second. And it does thrill first. I mean, when we open when the movie opens, you know, we get an assassination in and you're just looking at the marquee, Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn, knowing what they've done on television, uh, you might wonder what kind of movie is this? Right. Yeah. I just watched um, Cactus Flower, which is Goldie Hawn's uh, screen debut 10 years before mm -hmm. this or almost 10 years before this. And I had such a great time with that movie. And right out of the gate, she is clearly defining kind of comedy chops. She just is great with timing, great with kind of that kind of ditzy personality. And and she just runs with it really well. And she has that here. But again, it's that, uh, you know, the man who knew too much type of story that we have here of this girl who kind of gets trapped in this situation because of this guy that she met and this evidence that he's kind of hidden with her. And uh, now everybody's after her and she doesn't know why. It plays really nicely and allows the comedy to come as it needs with characters that you're, I mean, as, as you have mentioned, have established themselves as comedic characters. Before we get into the sort of beat by beat of the film and the things that really stick out to us, we, you and I were chatting online about kind of what this, what kind of comedy this is. And um, I think coming off of Silver Streak, 
and dealing with something, uh, you know, as um, I, I think a, a comedic third rail like blackface, uh, like we talked about in that uh, movie last week. Uh, now we have um, we're lampooning little people uh, in this movie and we have an entire uh, an entire MacGuffin that is all about uh, beware the dwarf. Uh, how does how does that bit hit you in this movie? That's um, it ends up being tricky because we are in a place where we're um, this is the period, you know, this is kind of the late 70s when this takes place and uh, and when it's made. And I feel like that's a vein of comedy that that people discussed more uh, vocally. I mean. Last week, you even talked about when Richard Pryor was on the Carson show, and Carson said, mm-hmm. if you had all this money to go make your own movie, what would you do? And he's like, oh, I'd make it all with midgets, because it'd be, you know, save money on food. It's These are those comedy beats that um, people didn't have as much trouble, and perhaps people didn't see as being uh, politically incorrect at the time. It just was funnier because they're different, and that becomes something that, as we as a culture have kind of grown up and realized, you know, it's not necessarily that funny to to use that as a punchline of your jokes. Can we find something that's a little bit smarter? And so while it still plays, it it does end up being one of those things that's like, eh, it's a little more difficult to watch. And to a certain extent makes me say, well, this is why films like this might not be as readily available streaming because people realize now there's some stuff in here that you know, uh, you know, we may not want to bring back up again. I mean, it's well, always yeah, it brought sure up. doesn't represent our best angels. You know, I mean, it, well, it Disney, doesn't represent that you don't have to you don't have to be you know hurtful to be funny. Right, and Disney is the only place that I know, the only studio that seems pretty vocal about it as far as their movies, like Hiding Song of the South. But I don't hear any other studios saying that. They just do it quietly. Todd Phillips is uh, notable for his um, choice to leave, you know, a comedy, the hangover movies and and, uh, old school. And those were movies that uh, had some of that kind of pushing boundary pushing comedy uh, in them. Um, And of course, in Vanity Fair, he's known for, you know, Vanity Fair, his big quote was, you know, I left I left. Uh, comedy because he says, go try to be funny nowadays in this woke culture. There were articles written about why comedies don't work anymore. I'll tell you why, because all the effing funny guys are like, F this S, because I don't want to offend you. He obviously, as a guy who's made some funny movies, uh, has a certain perspective on it. You know, I think this is the movie that those guys are thinking about when they talk about why they why they're not making funny movies right now. So I wonder if he's if he's pining for the day when he'll be able to make movies with uh, white guys in blackface and poking fun at little people again. Like it's such a strange yeah. perspective to have, and I get it. It create it's it allows for easy laughs, and you can have this this whole mysterious threat of beware of the dwarf that turns into a gag with one character, even though it leads to a different character. It it, it ends up. Now, as I look at this, it feels like an easy laugh. And that's I, I think that's the the thing that some com- comedy writers have difficulties with, because it's like it makes you work harder to find some of those jokes. And I, 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 yeah. I think it's fine. Just work harder. Find better jokes. 
I wonder if Todd Phillips is a guy who in 20 years is going to be pining for the time when he can make movies about, you know, brokenhearted incels who, uh, you know, attack <laughs> crowds. Right. I mean, extraordinary violence on the innocent. Um, that That's one of those things that's that's pushing boundaries that maybe we just need to explore so we can get it out of our systems. And I get it. I mean, push boundaries, you know, if yeah, people should do that. But it doesn't, I, I think that there needs, you know, find ways to have consequences. I mean, that's, that's I think, the issue with with this style is so often they do this sort of stuff and it, it becomes very Bugs Bunny-esque. It's like they do this thing and, and this film certainly, it's it, it holds true as well because we see where what happens when she throws the, the little person out of her window and he falls into the trash can and it rolls down and all this comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, but, and this is the frustrating thing. Would it play if it was a regular person who did that? Probably. It probably would be just yep. as funny. So then yep. the question is, okay, so does it matter that there's a little person? It's great that he's getting work, but could it have worked with a regular person or does, does it lose the funny? Yeah. Part of the reason this works in this particular case is because Billy Barty is such a class act, right? right. Yeah. And, and he's a, a great comic actor with an incredible face and he's just a unique guy. Does he have to necessarily be a little person to make the joke work? Did they have to make the assassin nicknamed the joke like or the, the dwarf like that? It seemed like it took that it took the easy route toward the comedy right to your point come up with better jokes that is a real problem i had and it's highlighted it, it exacerbates the challenge of the the um uh, of the fact that the comedy comedy is today hurtful the fact that it was easy it was cheap it was the cheap way to to go for a mistaken identity trope and and let it play out uh, in the naturally comedic streets of san francisco under construction and I just felt like it wasn't trying very hard. I mean, and, that, and that's where hindsight has to play. And I think that's yeah. why, again, movies like this may not be as accessible via streaming because when you watch something via streaming, it it it, it doesn't necessarily make it a modern film, but it's a much more modern way to watch it, much easier. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, the masses who probably stream don't really put context on stuff it's just there they watch it and then this plays it's like so to a certain extent maybe there are certain films like this that it's like you know what make it a little harder to find it's okay (laughs) does it need a does it need an intro by uh you know leonard malton explaining it maybe not but you know (laughs) yeah i I would i would have to talk to my kids about it before we sat and watched this now I was worried about the movie in the opening sequence. The opening sequence, we're at a party. Uh, Goldie Hawn is, is uh, her character is at this party. And we learn through conversation that um, she is divorced and she is now, uh, her friend is encouraging her to get out there. And we have this conversation where she's saying, you know, you're hiding behind these glasses and you used to have, cle- you used to show off your cleavage and She's having this conversation with Goldie Hawn, who is not wearing glasses. We have not seen her wear glasses, and she's wearing an extraordinarily low-cut blouse. And I'm thinking to myself, is her friend actually looking at her right now? <laughs> I, I know that, like, I recognize that these are things that her friend might know about her and might have experience beyond the scene. But as an audience member, we don't have that experience. And uh, and so I, I was worried almost immediately that um, that that our 
our you know protagonist in this series, Colin Higgins, might not be ready to direct and write uh, his his own first feature here. It it ended up, I think, redeeming itself overall. But these kinds of of things like the literal interpretation of what's on the page, regardless of the production and costume design that ended up happening since you wrote it. I was worried about that, that we were going to to run into to challenges. It didn't feel too sloppy to me, but I guess in context of what he said about uh, the previous film and how um, when Arthur Hiller directed it, it was very much just kind of a straightforward directing job. He didn't do much to to kind of um, flesh it out any more than was already on yeah. the page. And he was like, if I did it, I would have fleshed it out more because I ended up seeing problems with my own script. I think that's yeah. a very insightful thing to see. I, I guess I would say I, I didn't feel like it was that different from what Arthur Hiller delivered. So I, I think it, it could just reflect on the whole idea of how hard it is to actually be a director. And yeah. here he is now in this position where he's in charge of all these departments with so much stuff happening around him, having to get everything done and making all the decisions. And it kind of realizing, you know, I can't just sit here and rework the script because so many other things are happening. I, I guess I didn't really think about it uh, initially, but in retrospect, as I look at it, I think there may be some of that. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's prioritizing the decisions of what you're going to put on screen, right? Yeah. Like there are other decisions that might not work, but somebody put some glasses on her. So when her friend says you're hiding behind those glasses, she's actually wearing glasses. <laughs> it's, <just laughs> like, it's ridiculous. Uh, and so that threw me for a loop. And then uh, point number two that worried me. This is a movie I'm going into knowing that it's a comedy thriller and I'm waiting for the comedy. I don't yet have the comedy. I know we have some klutzy Chevy Chase stuff. But then she has this conversation with her friend. She goes and she gets in her car. Adorable car. Totally fits the bill. But the last couple of lines before she gets in the car with Chevy Chase, um, when he says, I think he does say something funny. What does he say? He says, um, you know, you're a great looking girl. I'm a great a guy like uh what do you say let's go take a shower which is like I, I feel like that is a line that was written for chevy chase five years later like it's just that perfect level of of um forwardness that just fits his his comedy the, the drop line to the credits is like oh well why don't you try it then and it feels like such a comedic line and I should be laughing. And what I need is a cue to laugh. And that cue would be music. And instead, I get Barry Manilow. And I am not <laughs> laughing. I'm wondering, what is this movie doing? Like, what is going to happen here? Um, I had no like sense memory of what that experience was like. But they give Manilow top, top, uh, yep. like uh, extraordinary early billing, two credits, uh, credit screens for uh, ready to take a chance again the opening song yeah it was uh kind of a surprise to to have him pop up i mean i it shouldn't be because barry manilow yeah, was so was hot in the 70s i mean he, like 73 i think he won his first grammy and then i mean he's just 
I mean, he hasn't stopped. The guy just hasn't stopped. He keeps kind of pounding stuff out. And despite what you think of him, I mean, he still draws, uh, you know, oodles and oodles of fans. And, uh, you know, I think that I think that says a lot about him. And I think the fact that he appears in the movie says a lot about uh, I I don't know. I want to say it says a lot about studio choices uh, and the whole idea of, you know, Oscar bait and finding ways to get something in the movie so that it can uh, get some buzz that isn't necessarily whether it fits the movie or not. And this was apparently not the time when it was just in the end credits, because here we have it at the opening credits and it does throw you a little bit when all of a sudden, you know, this this whole thing ready to take a chance again. And I get it. You know, they set her up. She's divorced and not quite ready to take a chance again. And Barry's saying, you're ready to take a chance again. Literally and, take yeah. a chance again. But uh, it's he, he does not emote for a comedy film. He does not. Nor it's a, a tough way to start. Neither. Nor a thriller. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And then, Andy, and then, my goodness, the first line out of the opening song is her singing, la-di-di-da, when you go for it, from the song. Really? It turns out <laughs> Manilow was in the car. It's diegetic music, Andy. This is, for me, it was the musical equivalent of her saying, wait, are you up to foul play right now? When Scotty gets in the car the first time, like it just is just it was it. I didn't like it. I don't care for those little those little things. That's yeah. personal. I don't care for it. It didn't bug me as much as it bugs you. Um uh, Isn't you know, this the same? Like you're the, you're the one who got all upset in Rogue One, wasn't it? When he tried to, or maybe it was Solo when they they had the scene playing on the advertisement. This is it's different. It's a pop song. She's listening to a pop song. It's very different than all of a sudden the Empire theme, you know, <laughs> being used in advertising for join the Emperor. Da, 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 da. <laughs> A uh, little bit different, um, but still, I, I don't have as much problem with it being diegetic, but I do still have a problem with Manilow as much as I can enjoy a Manilow song uh, in context of other things. Uh, it didn't work for me that well at this point in this film. Like when Copacabana pops up later, it's used in context and I'm totally fine with it. Well, in that time, the Copacabana was used in the Empire, uh, joined the Empire ad. That was huge. <laughs> Um, I think wasn't that okay. where uh, isn't that the official name of the cantina in uh, Mos Eisley? Isn't it, it the Copacabana? <laughs> it's a Copacabana, and the entire Empire's tagline is "Ready to take a chance again." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Manilow is big uh, in a galaxy far, far away. I Huge. love it. <laughs> Um, you know what? Should we should we talk about we spent a lot of time last time talking about tropes, the tropes but that Colin Higgins has uh, fostered, supported, furthered and maybe in some cases initiated. <laughs> right. There are, this is a tropathon. It's a cornucopia <laughs> of tropes, Andy, this movie. It really is. And in context of what you were saying about comedy thrillers, I'm like, I, I feel like there are quite a few that probably kind of burst forth from this place. Because I, I feel like that 80s, 70s, 80s vibe just is really strong here. Now, I should say, I mean, he pulled a lot of his story ideas that I think have become tropes from Hitchcock. I mean, he has mentioned yes. that, I mean, just the, for this film, he mentioned some of his 
influences is the 39 steps, saboteur, north by northwest, notorious, vertigo, psycho, uh, dial him for murder, and of course, the man who knew too much. And I think all of that definitely makes sense. And some of those have tropes that I think Hitchcock established in thrillers. And so mm-hmm. it's great to see some of the thriller tropes still being used uh, in different ways here. But there are certainly some comedy ones. So yeah, let's go through them. We start with picking up a hitchhiker and she drives down and they decide to go to a movie together. And so we have our first, which actually is we have a couple of nested tropes that happen in the theater. And the first one is uh, theater violence timed to on screen violence in the movie. And in this case, she just gets spooked uh, as her date shows up late and she's already watching a scary movie, uh, black and white movie on the screen. What was the movie? I've, he shows I've up late. Forgotten. Because he's been injured and dies in this. Yes. Scene. Yeah. He he does. He dies in the seat. But um, and so they have a uh, one of their other tropes that comes up later is the uh, mistaken uh, the comic misunderstanding conversation where he, she's filling in the blanks of what's going on in the movie, what he missed in the movie, not knowing that he is bleeding into her popcorn and trying to tell her about you know. <laughs> Please beware of the dwarf. I'm not sure there's a dwarf in this movie as she's eating bloody popcorn. Gross. The theater violence, time to on-screen violence. He's already been injured, but we do get a scare as he reaches for her. And then she gets up to go get help. And we have the old disappearing body. The body disappears while the protagonist is gone getting help. She comes back and she's made to look like a fool uh, because the body is now gone. And she just raised a whole fit about it. Yeah, and that, right, definitely is that whole trope of the, this is a very Hitchcockian one, setting up a story. Truly. No one believes the protagonist, because when the protagonist keeps bringing people back, the the villains have totally cleaned up their mess. It's such an easy, natural way to build distrust, an unreliable, sort of unreliable narrator in our protagonist. Like, we're on on her side because we saw what happened, uh, and it allows us to get sort of emotionally uncomfortable with the world that she lives in because they just don't understand her. And it's yeah. super effective, and that's why, again, it's a trope. Yeah, um, and you did, just real quick, you did mention the movie that was playing with the violence happening. Yeah. That was Appointment with Danger from 19. 19- with Alan Ladd, Phyllis Calvert, and Paul Stewart. Although in the movie, it's actually credited outside the marquee and in the poster as This Gun Is Mine. Excellent. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do get a few tributes to to that. As we mentioned, the who's on first style of comic misunderstanding conversations. First one in the theater. Then again, we get it in her apartment as she's trying to describe the events to the police officers, uh, Chevy Chase and Brian Dennehy. uh, And uh, it is equivalent to the silver streak gene wilder explaining the conversation to the chief (laughs) in the little town and so we get that replayed in this case i think it works really well especially because goldie hawn super charming and baffled and she's got this she's just super likable when she's in that sort of daffy mode and when she turns around and says i've got it the albino is working for the dwarf and then they cut to another scene and it's just it ends up being a perfect little cut i'm tempted to say although i don't think it quite fits but i think you could say some of the misunderstandings going on between dudley moore and her her as she's kind of trying to come back to his apartment and just all of that stuff. But it's like, I don't know if that's quite the same type of misunderstanding. Well, it's pretty good, though. I do think Dudley Moore deserves a conversation unto himself. (laughs) He definitely will. Let's let's put that one in in the S&M closet for now. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, We have the protagonist interrupting an impromptu affair. 
which happens with the theater owner when she she comes out to get help and finds him with a a lady in his uh in his office which was uh yeah a random moment but there was totally random moment nice uh uh, in flagrante delecto um (laughs) we have misunderstood snakes in this case goldie hahn is sitting in the apartment (laughs) <laughs> and uh she's meeting her uh, the the apartment um uh, landlord the houseman um and it is uh played by the wonderful Burgess Meredith Mr. Hennessy and he uh he's making tea for her and nobody seems to notice as the camera keeps cutting back and forth to this giant python that is sli- slithering around the the chair and the table and eventually it comes right up on the table and we get a little ooh but it's a very threatening probably 2 minutes as they're having a conversation <laughs> and the snake is sneaking up toward them and it is very thrilling and again we get our hearts pounding because ooh snakes and it turns out the snake is Esme Burgess Meredith's pet snake. Played by Shirley Python. Shirley, you're joking. What if she's related to Monty? You know, they actually tried to name it Shirley Python, but it was taken by the snake, so they <laughs> went right. with Monty. Let's go with Monty. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, we have another trope. Um, I think you wrote it down as the last one in the library, but I think it works yep. with the last one at work uh, in, yep. in many places. You know, you're turning off all the lights and the the space you're in, which is a large workspace, gets darker and darker as you're uh, kind of working to get closer and closer to the door. Um, and I think this trope pairs with uh, not just your la- the last one, but your last one and your being stalked, as it turns out. It does. And it works so well in the library in particular here because we get lots of shelves. There's so much opportunity to play with the camera, where you put the camera, what parts of bodies you reveal. Are we tracking shoes? Are we tracking hands and cuffs? Uh, are we tracking eyes as books get moved? And I think it works very well here. I, I, it made me question, though, the the smarts of Whitey, the name of the albino character. <laughs> <laughs> Just have to have a chuckle about that. The fact that when we get the reveal of him, she's squatting down and she's uh, making space for books on a shelf to put them away. And as she does so, she pulls the books out and sees his face behind and providing the big scare. But that yeah. also means that not only is she squatting down to do that, he is squatting down expecting her to pull that out to look right. at him because she mistakes him for the dwarf which right because he's so short <laughs> i'm like oh that's a really strange thing for him to be doing that i guess works in context of the film until you really think and about it only in the context of the film like that's it just <laughs> yes, stop exactly. we have uh what you have called the character switcheroo uh, yes, our uh, our religious figure at the very beginning of the film who gets offed right away and replaced with a double that uh, in this particular case is his twin brother with the exact same trope that we didn't bring up in Silver Streak as they kill um, uh, the boss and uh, and he gets replaced by a bad guy. So definitely yeah. something that um, I think that Colin Higgins is at this point, showing that he enjoys that trope. He enjoys it or, you know, I almost get the feeling like this movie is uh, a chance for him to make a lot of the tropes that he really liked in Silver Streak, but do it himself, right? Like things that he felt like he could do better. Well, not and things that Hitchcock has done well, right? Yeah, Because right, yeah, right. I, I think that's also part of it. We have the cute girl in glasses trope. 
Yeah, and I was trying to remember, is there a point? I, I don't think so, because she does put her glasses on. And as we know from the our conversation earlier, at the beginning, her friend is just like, why do you always have to wear those ugly things? Um, but I don't think that this falls quite into the exact trope where it's the cute girl in glasses, but she's not cute until she takes her glasses off and the protagonist take or the the guy takes her glasses off and go and it's revealed that she's this beauty and now she can finally live like a beauty because she doesn't have glasses on her face. Yeah. Well, and I don't think that works entirely here because when we meet her, she's already not wearing glasses. Right. Like she's already revealed this exactly who she is. So that would be the central, central failing. <laughs> but she does put the glasses back uh, on. Yeah. And uh, so maybe she's that. But they don't do a hero kind of hero cute yeah. girl reveal shot. So right, right, right. Uh, we do have an angry police chief. We do have uh, one of those. Yep. Yeah. And and in fact, uh, our uh, Chevy, who is a police officer, a detective, uh, is currently suspended. As we meet him, they don't make a very big deal out of that, but it's we do get a scene where we have the police chief who's says you should just not be. What are you doing? Get out of the way! And we, right, we right. have some moments. Yeah, that does seem to be another trope. You know, the cop who's yep. you know <laughs> who's on suspension who can't stay away and has to right. get into the case anyway. <laughs> exactly. Totally. He just can't. He's a workaholic cop. <laughs> um, we, is the albino a baddie? Yeah, we yeah, we have that again, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we got that. We got the 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 not shut door trope of our protagonist coming home only to find the door cracked because they have either gone through her house or are waiting for her inside or both. And uh you know, we definitely get that trope here. And they use the doors so much in this movie. So many of the door closings, openings behind the door, open the door, close the door. Mm-hmm. Um we do have the sex crazed bit part. <laughs> There is so much. Uh, it's really Dudley Moore is just a sex crazed <laughs> lunatic. And we get a lot of him uh, in, in this. We get the, uh, oh, I'm not even in my, this isn't even my real name. I'm not really here. Yeah. Well, and I think that trope uh, ties into the whole idea of uh, the a, a bit character who pops in in strange ways throughout the film, like bumping into the protagonist over the course of mm-hmm. the film, um, only to have them revealed in some stranger way at the ending. Like they're also t- connected to the end of the story, right? As mm-hmm. as he is here, that's mm-hmm. definitely something that we've we've seen. You know, and and one that we really absolutely cannot miss because it happens. It seems to happen in every movie we talk about right now. It's the cops bring civilians with them to places where civilians shouldn't be brought along. <laughs> right. As they're as they're doing their police work. Hey, why don't you come along? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it is better here because it's not like in Silver Streak. We had the scene where the policeman throws bullets at uh, at Gene Wilder with the gun. Uh, to, to act- I mean, we don't have it go that far uh, in this yeah. case. Uh, it's a little bit lighter. But You're right. He doesn't arm her, uh, except maybe with her umbrella, although. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, of course, what would a San Francisco film be without crazy San Francisco uh, chase scenes? That's truth. Uh, San Francisco is just a naturally funny city. So whether you're rolling a little person in an oil barrel down a street or having a crazy drive chase scene, that takes this movie from intriguing thriller to just lampoon car chase, driving over construction uh, berms uh, and and getting cars airborne in the streets of San Francisco. And driving funny vehicles like a, a truck with a house on its back. 
back. Yes, yes. And the old uh, look, you, you know, the, look at that guy and steal the car yep. bit, right? That happens a lot in it this movie. It felt very much out of What's Up, Doc. <laughs> Another yeah, film we've exactly. talked about on the show. Right. And then, of course, there's the elderly father figure who, surprisingly, has some pretty mad skills, as we learn, as Burgess so Meredith <laughs> reveals his uh, military ninja training, apparently. It's like Burmese jungle fighter. And uh, he is, of course, fighting against um, the uh, wonderful um, Rachel, Rachel uh, Roberts, Gerda Caswell. Right? Yeah. As, uh, Rachel Roberts as Gerda Caswell. And, and uh, I believe this is her last film. And uh, it's a very it's it's one of those bits that the comedy works because it's so against type and out of expectation. And I think it's uh, it plays really well. It's good fun. Very much so, very much so. Yeah, just a few tropes in this film. And, uh, you know, I will largely say I didn't feel there were any that I tired of because the film felt of a place where these sorts of tropes fit. Everyone playing out these tropes was just so likable. Like, I just found myself so into the the people and the way they were playing these parts. And I think this is a good enough time as any to talk about Dudley Moore and, and what we get from Dudley Moore in this thing. I mean, are you are you a Dudley Moore fan? Like, do you find you like his his movies? Dudley Moore is an actor who, again, kind of uh, of the era when I was watching some of these movies, I ended up seeing, you know, a healthy dose of Dudley Do- Dudley Moore stuff. I probably, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I mean, he was one of those guys who popped up on stuff like The Muppet Show. And so I definitely saw stuff like that. And I, I think it was the mid 80s when I started seeing him in movies. Like I missed some of like the Arthur and... Uh, unfaithfully yours. I think Best Defense was probably the first thing I saw of his, unfortunately. Uh, Mickey and Maude, Santa Claus, the movie, Like Father, Like Son, Crazy People. That's probably my favorite movie that I've seen of his. Um, so I missed a lot of his career. So I, I've always thought of him in my head as very much kind of an 80s comedy actor that I that I watched. He, I, I find myself really, um, I don't know if inspired is the right word to use about Dudley Moore, but I really like Dudley Moore because of just how his career um, wound. And I don't know I, I, how it ended up. I'm probably saying all this stuff and somebody's going to write and say, well, he ended up in a ditch and it was horrible. But when I was watching Dudley Moore, um, I was really inspired by him because he was, a, I mean, he was a child prodigy, musical prodigy, right? I mean, he's, he, as a musician, he is... Uh, uh, absolutely exemplary. And then he found a way into this sort of comedy bit where, um, you know, he was able to get in movies and co- consistently make me laugh and feel things. And um, and and so I just really found that he was a guy I could uh, I could connect with on screen. And then to see him in this again, I totally forgotten he was even in it and that he is this sex crazed um, uh, concert or conductor uh, is it was just too much. This the mistaken identity bit where she uh, Goldie Hawn effectively picks him up in a a bar and he takes her back to his flat and slowly unravels or reveals all of the accoutrements in his flat that has been outfit as as a, uh, a den of iniquity right? uh, is just a priceless peak of comedy in this movie because it is the most broad 
of the comedy that she is behind these curtains and we know what's going on behind her as he keeps saying, you know, oh, are you into that? You want binoculars? I read about that in Penthouse. Uh, And the bed unfolds and the lights and the disco ball and he's dancing and taking his clothes off and he ends up, uh, I mean, it's just. He's got the inflatable doll that's like the balloon. That are apparently inflated with helium because they float. (laughs) So I I find that entire sequence and her, uh, the way she responds to it is really priceless because she's not that shocked. Like she's really, she's pretty chill about the whole thing, that it's just a misunderstanding. And I can't, but, you know, she's, you find her curious about it and just generally uh, adorable and understanding. And then she walks out. It's not a, it's not crazed it's just it's just perfect right and then she runs into him in the massage parlor and we the whole thing plays all over again yeah and yeah and uh which which lee and and that's where i think the threat comes a little more close to him because you know they are looking for him in the theater and she kind of or in the in the massage parlor and she gets him to go out to try to make a phone call all that sort of stuff happens and uh only to have the reveal that, that we talked about with the sex crazed bit of the character going full circle he's the conductor of the opera that the whole climax of the film takes yes. place at yeah um so i i think it's really great I, and uh, i think he is he, he his timing is just really perfect and he's got the the goofball um the goofball bit uh nailed um I really well, I like, like I feel like it probably helped push him into more of his movie career because, I mean, he had been in some stuff, but not in huge roles. I think mostly he was known for just the the kind of the comedy uh, stuff that he was doing, um, I think, on the BBC, right, with uh, with Peter Cook, where they were kind of doing doing stuff. And um, uh, and and so, I mean, he had done some films, but I think. It really bursts in the early 80s with Arthur, I think. I think that's largely where he kind of takes off. Well, I'd say actually maybe right after this with 10 probably is what really kind of. 10. Yeah. That was going to be it. That was going to be it. And he made some, he had some issues, uh, some choices, some movies that we've talked about that aren't as, uh, that are movies that you would be challenged to talk to your kids about. They just don't work as well as, as they did. But he also did Santa, the Santa Claus, right? With, yep, he played Santa, Patch right. in, in uh, uh, Santa Claus the movie. And that was one that, uh, that was a staple around uh, my house uh, for a number of years. So crazy people, I feel like that should be one that you would also love because of, you know, just kind of your, your time in in yeah. uh, in kind of media the the honest advertising in that film just endlessly gives me giggles it is perfect Volvo. it is just they're boxy but they're good but they're good <laughs> <laughs> totally totally so yeah. uh that's Dudley Moore he's uh, wonderful and he's great in this movie how to get made andy well this was a as i we've talked about Colin Higgins really did enjoy these homages to Hitchcock and really kind of created this script, which was originally called Killing Lydia, as uh, as another homage to it, just like Silver Streak was. Um, and he did have Goldie Hawn in mind. He had met her through Hal Ashby, but it, he couldn't get it to take off. Um, and then he reworked the script and took it to Paramount. They were trying to get Farrah Fawcett to come on board. But she was stuck in a legal battle with uh, the Charlie's Angels producers, so couldn't get out of that. And then they decided to go with with uh, with Goldie Hawn, which was great. Um, 
And uh, as far as the the uh, Chevy Chase role, he had actually written it for Tim Conway. Um, but Tim Conway, who I love, um, he turned it down. And uh, I guess it also had been offered to Steve Martin, who turned it down. And I, what I read, which I think is kind of interesting, they also, uh, Harrison Ford was also one of the studio's choices for it, but he had actually turned this down in favor for a little-known opportunity that he had at the time called Star Wars. Nice choice. Probably good for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't even imagine now. Uh, you know, just n- not having him as Han Solo. How weird would that be? So weird, especially yeah. if it had been Chevy Chase who got Han Solo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, can you even now, imagine now Chevy Chase? Now trying to contextualize just... that in The Force Awakens yeah. with, with an old <laughs> Chevy Chase out there. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh, I love recasting just movies. Imagine him. He just drops, he just dropping weapons left and right, like slipping off of wet surfaces. Uh, <laughs> we get that here. Just imagine. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Perfect. That's great. That's it's, great. I recast it. It's done in my head. <laughs> it's done. It is done. It um, is let's done. see. Chevy Chase uh, did get cast after all that. And apparently he is the one who uh, kind of pushed for uh, Dudley Moore to be on board. So, so, uh, and I, I guess I didn't realize this, uh, but after having talked about it, uh, his push for Dudley Moore is really considered what was the, the, um, the turning point for Dudley Moore to kind of burst forth with his career. So there you go. Now we have that answer. You know, we should m- mention the young Brian Dennehy uh, in this movie. Does it just seem like that is a man born to play police officers? Well, kind of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, before he did this, he'd, he'd only had what a TV. He had some TV stuff. Did, had he done? I guess he'd done a couple of movies. Looking for Mr. Yep, Goodbar. Right. He was the he was, surgeon. I mean, yeah, nothing, nothing too big. Semi tough. He was in that. Uh, yeah. And bumpers. I'm not even familiar with that. But those all were a year before this. And then right. foul play and fist with uh, Stallone. And yep. uh, and then he ended up in ten also and yeah I mean he really kind of took off I I don't know I feel like was it is first blood really the the place that you'd say just he seemed to really stand out well I would for sure because um, that's you know that was a uh, that was my Brian Dennehy started with first blood so um, it, it was certainly the one that that put him on the map for me. I didn't remember that he was in 10 until years later and saw it. I mean, he was a secondary character for me. Man, is that, I mean, just that guy has not stopped, you know, I mean, he's still acting and stuff as of, uh, well, 2018, you know, yeah. um, you know, still working on stuff. And uh, yeah, I love that. The he's adventure busy. of Buddy Thunder in po- pre-production. <laughs> uh, son, son of the South, grandfather in post-production for 2020. Yeah. Amazing career. Mm-hmm. Of like 183 credits. Uh, you Brian mentioned Burgess Dennehy. Meredith. I mean, we've yep. talked about him on the show before, but I mean, <laughs> I love seeing him in this role that doesn't seem huge. Kind of just a, a kind of a, almost, I guess you could say a grandfather figure for Goldie Hawn's character. He's the uh, landlord at her apartment complex. But as you already discussed, how great is it to see him when he uh, <laughs> wields his his fists in his uh, crazy fight against uh, Rachel Roberts? I mean, oh, it's, it's unbelievable them rolling on the floor together, uh, you know, 
hair pulling, clawing. It's non-traditional fighting styles, jungle fighting styles. Rachel Roberts seems so funny in that role. I mean, we talked about her somewhat recently on the Murder on the Orient Express uh, bit right. as the uh, as the uh, as the assistant, I believe, to the queen or the princess or whatever she is. Right. That's right. Hildegard. So this movie, she did a bunch of TV stuff after this movie, but should she do it? I don't, I guess, Yanks, When a Stranger Calls, she was in 1979. Which was a, um, wasn't that a, a TV movie originally? Maybe. I'm, uh, maybe. And then Charlie Chan and the Church, Curse of the Dragon Queen, was that a TV movie in 81? This was pretty close to the end of her career. Uh, and she died in 1980, so hmm. young, 53. Yeah. But she was fantastic in this. I think this is an interesting, she's representative of an interesting thing in this movie, which is that the entire caper is like what the bad guys are trying to pull off is really deeply secondary to what is going on with the film, uncovering the film, finding the film, and Goldie Hawn's kind of role. Like it's, it, the fact that we have the archbishop murdered in the opening scene. And we don't see the archbishop again for like 90 plus minutes. <laughs> we don't like there's no there's no context for why that happens for a long time. Yeah, well, right. I mean, we, we see him come back when they drop the car off or they go to check on the car, although we yeah, don't I really get a, a big sense of it. But, uh, you know, right. And I mean, Eugene Roche, we should also mention him, who's who plays both the original archbishop yes. and his twin brother who takes over the role. Uh, but it is kind of an odd little thing that they have this this you know this whole idea of uh, you know kind of continuing their basically kind of their 60s uh you know fight against the power right i mean that's really kind yeah. of what it's all about i uh, i love eugene roche he's one of those faces that is so familiar and i think it's from for me probably tv from stuff like all in the family and soap certainly soap and, oh, uh, you know, he's a, a, one of those guys, Magnum P.I., he was on that, sometimes Webster. Uh, Airwolf. You know, Airwolf, uh, and then in, a, you know, a lot of movies and stuff. But definitely, uh, oh, Perfect Strangers, he was also in that. That's, I think, where my head mostly goes with him is a lot of those TV roles that he played. That's right. Uh, terrific face for this kind of role again. He yeah. and Brian Dennehy should do a buddy cop movie. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, he died. Unfortunately, yeah, that worked. Uh, that won't work. Oh, well. yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Mark Lawrence pops up in this as the actual, yeah. uh, you know, character named the dwarf, dwarf or nicknamed the dwarf because his name is Rupert Stiltskin. At least I liked that there was a reason that he had that nickname because <laughs> otherwise I'm like, that's, that's a stretch, you know. But um, he's got a great bad guy face, and I do love seeing him. And stuff like this. Uh, I'm trying to think of where I most connect with him. I just feel like he's kind of a bit character that you see in stuff. He's been in some James Bond movies. Um, he was in Marathon Man, which we've talked about on the show. Um, yep. He was in Deep Space Nine, which you probably, um, yep. I don't know, yeah, you probably remember that. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. Uh, great faces from... Oh. He is He is another one of those faces. I remember, you know, you see him in things like From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, and you mentioned the James Bond, Diamonds Are Forever, and The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, predominantly, were there others beyond that? I don't know about the James Bond. Oh, Key Largo, there's one yeah, that we've it, talked about on the show with yeah, him. He is one of those quintessential faces, and he is not used extensively in this movie. No. I, by the time he finally comes in, it's like... 
Yeah. yeah. I, well, I think in order for him to get into the film, they had to pay off the whole gag with the dwarf, you know, AKA, right. The, the, the Bible salesman, they had to get that paid off before right. we could actually, you know, have this character introduced. So, um, right. But, um, yeah. And Billy Barty, you already mentioned, uh, it's, it's a great cast, a, a good, solid comedy cast of people that work really well in context of the film. Uh, camera, David M. Walsh, um, anything outstanding noted uh, from the cinematography in this one? I'm trying to think. I, you know, I don't think I have anything specific in mind, but I do think that uh, Walsh captured the thriller vibe pretty nicely. The shadows where they needed to be, the library scene stands out there. He also did Murder by Death. So I think he had a sense of kind of that comedy thriller and and way to kind of blend that sort of stuff um you know and he's you know he's had a a pretty full career he's done quite a few projects um i don't uh i don't know if he's passed away but uh he hasn't really been doing much at all um since the late 90s he uh he is behind uh outrageous fortune and my science project and johnny dangerously and i mean you talk about like comedy thriller type movies he's got his hand in a bunch of those too uh some horror uh he's quite a uh varied uh camera hand i kept thinking like or especially early in the movie so much of this is it it feels very 70s you talk about like camera tropes um the the whole uh we're gonna use transition shots or transition b-roll of you know we're in san francisco we're gonna focus on a skyscraper and we're gonna tilt down and uh, that's gonna be our transition between scenes like it felt like a 70s sitcom and that paired with the score which is a fine score from charles fox but there are so many stingers in this this is an incredibly stinger heavy movie where we get the the little transitional bits to to transition us between scenes you know where it 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 just leads us between like city sequences that i found it really distracting i felt like i was watching an episode of eight is enough you know for a little while there it was just not uh, it it sort of took me out of it but it's fun and i think you know transitioning to the score in particular it it does a great job of marrying comedy and thriller like it there's music that is genuinely intense and it it establishes the uh you know the thriller beat i think uh quite well to that end i i did enjoy it it did have a very 70s vibe to it but you know it fit and so i didn't really have too much of an issue with it that it, but it's definitely one that you listen to and you kind of keep it in place for where it comes from so before we get uh, we're getting close to wrapping this up I did want to just um bring up one last thing here that I think is kind of interesting this film when it was released the uh, the Swedes decided because of the obvious connections to Hitchcock's the man who knew too much mostly the uh the you know the crime taking place at the opera here they actually retitled this film when they released it in Sweden to the girl who knew too much and because of that, the Swedes decided, hey, let's do that with Goldie Hawn as her films come out. So in Private Benjamin, that was the girl who joined the army. And in Overboard, that was the girl who fell overboard. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's amazing. Right? <laughs> I, I'd wow. love to know if there Wait were some minute. other ones where that happened. 
Swedish translations of Goldie. I think what we need to do, we need to put it out to our Swedish listeners to let us know because uh, we want to know how Goldie Hans films have been retitled over there. Oh, yes. Okay. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) Or Pete will tell us. So you already got the girl who fell overboard for overboard. How about how about this? I'm going to go the other way for you, Andy. Are you ready okay. for this? Okay, oh, this will be good. I'll have I, to remember Goldie Hawn's I'm films. going to tell you the, the, Swedish, <laughs> the Swedish titles, and you're going to tell me the Goldie Hawn movie that it came from. Okay, let's see if we can do this. All right. The Girl Who Didn't Want to Get Married. Girl Who Didn't Want to Get Married. <laughs> um, gosh, I don't think that would be First Wives Club. Once you hear Club. it, um, once you hear it you're going to know. You're going to feel dumb. Oh, wow. Okay. The girl who didn't want to get married. Um, protocol? I can't think of a girl. I, I don't know. What? If you don't want to get married, maybe you just want to stay best friends. Oh, of course. Mm. Right. How about this one? <laughs> okay, this one. That one was a little hard. I'm going to give you a little bit of an easier one. The girl who worked shifts. Night shift. Swing shift. Swing shift. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> I had the right movie in my head, just the wrong title. <laughs> okay, how about the girl who took home the game? That's oh, how's it? No, uh, I said it. Wildcats. Yep, yep, Wildcats. And uh, uh, let's see. Yep, that's all I got. Okay, I would love to hear more of those. <laughs> the girl who bird on wire. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is super fun. Thank you, uh, as always. Sweden, and in advance to our Swedish listeners who I know are going to help us with this. Thank you Definitely. Uh, for that. Super fun. Cool. How to do an award season, Andy? You know, surprisingly, it had some awards, and maybe one of them is because Barry Manilow was big at the time. Um, <laughs> the song, Ready to Take a Chance Again, was the one Oscar nomination, uh, Best Music Original Song by Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel. Unfortunately, uh, it... or. Fortunately, perhaps uh, I should say that it did not go to that, although I don't know the song that won. The song that did win is called Last Dance from Thank God It's Friday. Are you familiar with that song? What? The last dance, the last dance, last dance. Is that Donna Summer? Donna Summer's in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I think that's the one. That's probably the one. Oh, I know that song. That's the one that took it, beating out Hopelessly Devoted to You from Greece. Um, so well, it would have to have been hopelessly devoted. Yeah. That's, also, the other songs: it's "When You're devoted. Loved" from "The Magic of Lassie" by the Sherman Brothers, and "The Last Time I Felt Like This" from "Same Time Next Year," uh, which was a fine mm. uh, Ellen Burstyn movie with Alan Alda. Yep. Uh, the song I don't remember at all. I mean, Greece. Greece no. is the word, baby. Greece is the word. Greece is always the word. At the Golden Globes, it had seven nominations. Uh, obviously, the fact that they have a comedy category helped out quite a bit. However, it didn't win anything. It did get nominated nominated for uh, for best picture for a comedy or musical but uh, did not win that that instead went to heaven can wait with warren Beatty. that name is probably going to pop up again here because he won best actor in a motion picture comedy or musical beating out chevy chase uh, we had dudley moore nominated for best actor in a supporting role but he lost to john hurt in midnight express a little bit more of a uh, a tough role there we had Goldie Hawn nominated for Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical, but lost to Ellen Burstyn in Same Time Next Year, which we just discussed. Uh, we had uh, Best Motion Picture 
acting debut for a male, Chevy Chase. How interesting is that? I don't think that category wow. exists anymore. But he lost to Brad Davis. Midnight Express, what has happened to Brad Davis? The other nominees, interestingly, Harry Hamlin from Movie Movie, Eric Roberts, King of the Gypsies, Andrew Stevens, The Boys in Company C, and Doug McKeon, Uncle Joe Shannon. The song, again, lost to Last Dance for Thank God It's Friday. And last but not least, Colin Higgins' screenplay for best, uh, for best screenplay for this, he lost to Midnight Express to Oliver Stone. It's fascinating to me just how much attention this movie got then at award season, given how hard it is to find today. Well, it uh, made a lot of money, so maybe that uh, speaks to it. Well, we should talk about that then. How to do at the box office. For Higgins' directorial debut, he did have a budget of $5 million, or about $19.6 million in today's dollars. The movie was released July 14th, 1978, opposite The Swarm, and it did well for itself, earning just under $45 million at the box office, or almost $177 million in today's dollars. That lands the film at an adjusted profit per finished minute of $1.3 million, allowing Higgins some more chances to play. Fantastic. Well, what a treat to uh, jump back into this movie. It's, uh, a, I think, a great way to continue our series on a, um, a fine writer and director uh, for a movie that, you know, didn't blow my socks off, but uh, it's funny. It's You know, it's funny, and I had a lot of fun with it. It's certainly something that I wouldn't have a problem putting on again because it's just an easy, fun watch. Well, we should probably take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all of the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, it'll take you straight to this movie in the flickchart catalog where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, Foul Play is up against The Lion in Winter. I got a lion in winter here. Yeah, I mean, come on. Right. I feel like this is going to be the plague of Foul Play. <laughs> Well, it was for Silver Streak, too. So, yeah. But then we have this one Foul Play versus Stripes. I would definitely say Foul Play. I will say Stripes. Oh, wow. These okay. movies are in a very similar area. That me. one was a lot more and, disjointed for me. And I never grew up with it. So I have no connection to it. So, yeah. Chevy Chase versus, you know. Yeah. The entire cast of Stripes. It's, it, it was, it's not quite enough. So uh, let's take it to that. Here we go. Let's do it. Here we go. One, one two, two, three. three. Scissors. Rock. All right. Fine. Well, Colin Higgins versus Colin Higgins. Foul play versus Silver Streak. I gotta go Silver Streak. I'm gonna go Silver Streak easily. Foul play or Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. Star Trek 3. So many problems with that one, but I will say Star Trek 3 as well. Foul play or Compulsion. Oh, Compulsion. Compulsion. What a great film that is. Foul Play or The Host, some Bong Joon-ho. The Host. Ugh, the one I have issues with. Um, the Host. You I'll give you The host. host. You want The Host. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. Foul Play or Christmas in July. Oh, Christmas in July, please. Christmas in July. What a delightful film that is. Totally. Hey, from our last series, we have Foul Play or The Lonely Guy. I'm going to say Foul Play. I will also go Foul Play. <laughs> Nobody jumped <laughs> off a bridge in this movie. <laughs> But a dwarf was thrown out of a window. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Foul play or La Femme Nikita. La Femme Nikita. I will take Nikita here. Well, that puts foul play in spot 324 on our chart. 324 out of 434. Pretty low. That's only a 25%. Yeah. 
would have been much lower uh, had I had my way and not been so terrible <laughs> at rock, paper, scissors. And that's exactly what happened on my list. How it stack up on yours? A little better. 1375 out of 4262 or 68%. Man, this one it fell so far so fast there were just there was no choice it just gave me no choice so it hit um 1203 out of 1429, which is a 16%. Yeesh. Uh, if I am to go by the algorithm uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a one star movie. And it's just not. It was a movie that was uh, gently, gently offensive, but overall funny and uh, <laughs> one that I would watch again. Uh, I, I could give this a three star and feel good. Two and a half, three stars it's right in the middle of uh, of the ranking for me. Yep, I'm at three stars with a like. Okay, I'll I'll, um, I'll stick with three stars and a like. Make the math easy. There you and, go. Uh, there you go. So what does that mean for us? Where do we go from here? We're going to be jumping to Colin Higgins' second directed film that he also wrote. And this one was very culturally big at the time. I certainly remember it being popular with my mother. It is nine to five. Quite the cast, quite the comedy. <laughs> and man, we get to talk about Dabney Coleman. Boom. This movie blew up the place. That's my memory of this is that it was huge. I hope that my memory is as good as the movie. I hope oh, I hope so, too. I, I saw it probably once when I was probably just too young to appreciate it and really yeah. get any of the messages or anything. I just remember the three women basically kind of torturing their boss and tying him up and stuff like that's my memory of it. So I feel like yeah. this definitely deserves a rewatch. Absolutely. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. five-star review from Mapico from Amazon.com titled My Most Memorable Inspirational Movie Goat Greatest of All Time Masterpiece to Me Please forgive me and bear with me for this long quirky review After all these years I could not help expressing my sincere devotion earnest appreciation and passionate affection for this movie to all those viewers here to share. I have to confess that Foul Play to me is without a doubt the best personal movie I've ever seen in my life and definitely the most significant movie that impacted my adolescence so charmingly as well as profoundly that it propelled me to reach my lifetime pivotal decision to come study in the U.S., my most idealistic freedom promised land per se, and furthermore, inspired me to eventually pursue filmmaking, even though it was pie-in-the-sky idea back then. I have to explain the backstory a bit to set the scene. A long time ago, before I went into a relatively small, new revival movie theater near the local river on the south side of Tokyo alone one weekend, I was completely exhausted emotionally and mentally. It's a lost faith, undeniably anguished period of my reckless youth. After I graduated from high school, I got one, two, three nearly lethal megaton body blow punches in my gut with these back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back catastrophic misfortunes 
hardships, and failures, all combined and happening simultaneously. A super typhoon, a perfect storm. The first punch was, I could not get into an art school I really wanted. I failed miserably. I did not pass the entrance examination. Art would make the world a better, peaceful place. My thinking was simply naive. Disappointed is an understatement. I was devastated. I was not talented enough to reach a level on par with others. My strict disciplinary accountant dad hated the idea of his son wanting to go to art school to begin with. He might have felt that it's unmanly, considering the fact that Japan's society was still a very male-dominant, self-aggrandizement, rat-race, business-oriented universe. I was not fulfilling his expectations. Later on, came as no surprise that he was also strongly against the idea that I go to the U.S. to continue my education. So, obviously, I did not get along with my dad at all at this time. There were frequent tense arguments, small karate conflicts, and emotional withdrawal. Questioning his authority with my unrealistic, idealistic ideology was candidly dismissed by him. Due to some Freudian psychoanalysis interweaved with guilty pleasure consciousness, it was painful and frustrating for the black black sheep-esque son not to make him happy and proud. My relationship with my pragmatic dad transforming into an unhealthy, suppressing, collapsing, abandoning one was my second punch. Then... My nail-in-the-coffin-esque third punch arrived in drastic manner. My high school sweetheart, who I had been going steady with for almost two years, passed a prestigious women's college entrance examination successfully. A few months after I celebrated with her, she broke up with me. It struck me out of the blue. I was not prepared for this. I had no clue, didn't see any signs that this disastrous milestone was coming around the corner. I subconsciously became a bitter, whining, feeble, annoying, frustrated, disposable burden for her, probably. My sensitivity, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-assurance, as well as ego were forever damaged, and such triskaidekaphobia-like fear took over my whole existence. Anyway, officially I became a vagrant-like ronin. Yes, high school grads who could not get into college, nor got a full-time job, are just like a masterless samurai during feudal era. No occupation, no identity, nobody. Gradually, I became distant, drifting away from almost all my friends and parents. I could not trust anyone. I lost faith and fell into an extreme catatonic state. I often wandered around the city, shivering, desensitized with a slouch as if I were carrying an unreasonably large scythe on the back. My only companion was some kind of capricious solitude, floating with cacophonic noise and the smell of the crepuscular city maze. I did not realize how severely the city of Tokyo was a lonely place, even with a population of 10 million. I felt completely isolated, and that all the crowds were non-emotional machines controlled by the nonchalant government. My FOLA, fear of left alone stage, was long gone. My body temperature dropped below zero while spiraling me downward into an unknown, rotten, nightmarish macrocosm. Occasionally, I drove my Honda motorbike alone to the empty, eerie Tokyo Wharf landfill area at late afternoon. I saw a jumbo jet taking off from Haneda Airport, heading to cross the Pacific Ocean. I was lost in reverie, having a slight ephemeral dream that someday I would be on that plane. I was subconsciously looking for a gateway to a pain-free freedom. I didn't think of hardcore liquor, too expensive, nor drugs, not available. 
Never mind going to seek psychiatrists, psychologists, counselor, therapists. It was inconceivable back then. I felt I was a tiny, misguided sea turtle stuck in an authoritarian, toxic city pond while hearing the voice of my dad saying, What's wrong with being stuck in a toxic city pond, huh? I've realized that in our cosmic world, we cannot stop time, nor rewind time back. One midnight radio program I listened to under the sheets on my futon bed suggested that time medicine, meaning passing time, would be a sovereign remedy for rehabilitating any pains. To some degree, I accepted, even if time seems to advance at a sloth's pace. Over time going into the movie theater had become my escapism routine where I felt emotionally safe and able to get away from my eternally felt unstable, desperate, tormented daily life, even if only temporarily. It was my tranquil, soothing secret nostrum oasis in the urban jungle. So, without much expectation when I went to see Foul Play, such an entertaining, poignant, forever optimistic, fun, quaint, quirky, whimsical piece of art movie. It was a eureka, fortuitous Judgment Day encountering Messiah moment as if I stumbled on a vast treasure trove of being alive, plus enlightenment with a huge emotional lift. It was a wholehearted gift from heaven on the verge of a nervous breakdown. In the blink of an eye, my synaptic connection functioned exuberantly, feeling a sudden frisson of amazement, pleasure, and relief, slaking my mental and psychological thirst. I thought I was having a therapeutic, silver-bullet-like-unequivocally-revelatory-celestial-out-of-body-visceral-sensation. It was a rite-of-passage moment to me. I saw a thin light, called the lifeline of hope, begin leaking through a tiny gap in the heavy metal sliding door of my mind, finding a precious hidden gem-esque emerald Buddha. It was a pure blessing indeed. It could have been pseudo-euphoria, but it did not matter to me then. It was almost like an invisible tattoo's virtual imprinting effect on me. I didn't realize that this type of movie somehow clicked miraculously with the core of my emotional needs. When I got out of the theater, I sensed that the night scene of metropolitan neon signs and traffic buzz with glittering headlights was perfectly photographed and choreographed. I felt like hopping over the river. In my analysis, there are a lot of considerable factors blending in with the secret ingredients and director's refined ingenuity for why I felt that way about this movie. The story takes place in San Francisco, USA, which was one of the most beautiful, popular, and desirable cities people longed to live in back then. It may be still, although the cost of living there is sky high now. I knew some familiar landmarks and tourist attractions there, such as the iconic Golden Gate Bridge, Alcatraz Island, and cable cars, Fisherman's Wharf, Chinatown, Ghirardelli Square, Lombard Street, Coit Tower, etc., mainly through Clint Eastwood's Dirty Harry movies, Bullet, Vertigo, and other visual references of the time. So those attractive locations were enticing. The fascinating atypical defiant storyline, which is to prevent the Pope from getting assassinated when he visits the city, also riveted me like an obsession. The gravitas theme, in a comical, lighthearted, romantic way, I later got to know the possible reason why writer-director Colin Higgins chose this particular premise behind it when one of my screenplay writing professors told us when I took his class at UCLA Film School, where Colin happened to study, and the professor happened to teach him there some long years before. I would say that he wanted to convey his own subtle personal message of his struggle with social acceptance of his unique alternative vision at the time. Needless to say, 
I was elated when it turned out that I was accepted to UCLA Film School in Colin Higgins' footsteps. It was a blissful and fateful honor to me, even though it may not have looked like anything to others. Interposing the structure of an unwilling participant, Gloria, gets tangled up with an extraordinary situation, set up. The story deals with a variety of subjects. Murder, betrayal, divorce, deception, opera, car chase, romance, slapstick, detective investigation, torture, time-pressing suspense, comedic moment, a python, youthfulness and ageism, feminism, sexism, satire, greed, capitalism, social justice, drug, statements for victimizing women, prevention, self-defense, gender-free equal rights, fraud, MacGuffin, and fascinating Hitchcockian flavor frame story scenes. All elements enchanted me tremendously, including one of the best rhythmically paced attention-grabbing openings in film history, with a symbolic, cute, yellow-colored Volkswagen Beetle running flawlessly along the picturesque coastline, which hooks you right off the bat. Extremely witty, clever, felicitous verbiage and dialogue with a double entendre light-hearted sense of humor. Remarkably creative, unexpected, suspenseful, escapade plots, even though it appears intricate and utterly wicked at first. And well-done cross-cut, cascading down, climactic, grandioso, uplifting, culminating finale. I was already foreseeing a bright future while having immersed myself into every moment of this well-paced, intertwined story development, revealing incessant surprises. I was equally surprised by the well-diversified cast, with a variety of intriguing characters played by well-trained, terrific actors. Burgess Meredith, who I know as Mickey in Rocky, was a big surprise to me. He can play comedy, too. Brian Dennehy is a versatile, dramatic actor I really admire. Marilyn Sokol as Gloria's no-nonsense friend at the library is an excellent counterbalance to Gloria's softness and plays a key role in cracking down on the tax crime committed by the religious organization. Legendary Billy Barty as Bible salesman was mistaken for an assassin and ended up being victimized by misunderstood, scared Gloria's non-malevolent intention. Hilarious funny man Dudley Moore gives priceless spices to heighten this first-rate comedic act accompanying childlike, innocent, harmless jocularity. Chevy Chase plays a cool Prince Charming, trying to be wise-cracking down-to-earth Lieutenant Tony, who protects Gloria with great, sometimes zany, sense of humor. This movie was the first feature Chevy Chase played a starring role in Fresh out of Saturday Night Live. When Tony makes Gloria laugh, that's the best moment. Chevy is a talented, dramatic actor, even though he is better known for comedy. In the past, I have borrowed one of Tony's lines, sort of, when I ask out an American girl. I awkwardly said, take a chance, on me, with me. She looked completely blank, agape. Maybe it didn't really convey effectively to her since my broken English pronunciation did not execute correctly. The timing was off, I guess. Anyway, I've contentedly applied something I've learned from the movie in my real life. I was not brave, nor funny, nor politically incorrect enough to even attempt using Tony's riskier, more blunt, and potentially disastrous, would you like to take a shower? I was actually delighted to see a nervous old Japanese tourist couple in the back seat turning into crazy, thrilled joyriders, laughing at full blast while yelling, Kojak, bang, bang, when Chevy Chase picked the limo to race the opera house. The limo to race the opera house for a high-speed car chase scene. 
the scene may be criticized for portraying them as stereotyped Asians in terms of present-day political correctness standard, but I was honestly not offended when I saw that. It's a jovial comedy, very much innocent merriment. That era was when Japan's economic boom exploded so that many Japanese tourists with big cameras hanging on the chest were able to go abroad for the first time. I easily assumed that their flocked-together behavior and mannerism might have caused some idiosyncratic funny looks among those local Americans. My aunt actually gave me the exact same or very similar J.A.L. satchel travel bag. I'd rather embrace that Japan's economic success has helped someone like me from the middle socioeconomic class come to study in America. You see, PPT, power of positive thinking, is a good thing. So to me, it's understandably welcoming as a celebratory and symbolic scene. Even the Mikado, the Japonesque comic stylish opera, has been criticized for promoting Asian stereotypes, but when I saw it, then I accepted it as simply exotic and satirical with super-elegant kimono and kabuki-like artistic makeup. It's a cultural charm. Barry Manilow's title song, Ready to Take a Chance Again, with his impeccable, resonating signature voice, enthralled my senses unconditionally. It's mesmerizing. I occasionally hum and karaoke sing it. Staying Alive by Bee Gees is also effectively introduced where often misinterpreting Dudley Moore dances hilariously and wackily. It was an absolutely invaluable crowd-pleasing scene. I bought a soundtrack record right away and listened to all the songs, including the music composer-conductor Charles Fox's Get Me to the Opera on Time, over and over. It positively lingers in my ears, occasionally pops up to lift me up and spice me up whenever I feel down. It makes me feel like dancing on the rainbow-colored ceiling while twisting my body and shaking my head. Last of all, Goldie Hawn's radiant, angelic, beaming, super-pure, charming, loving signature smile with merry blue-green shiny eyes not only captivated my fragile, timid heart by refilling it with ample joy, but also soothed my traumatized, fractured soul, resolving my pains and loneliness and very much chastening me to become a better person and be kind and helpful to others and the planet by expanding my horizons. Yes, along with her contagious, cheerful mirth, we all rooted for humble, romantic, shy librarian Gloria to fall in love again with Tony. Her considerate kindness and humanity shine gold forever. That is her born ultimate prowess. It's subtly shown, but her mental resilience and tenacity for goodwill is super. At any event, I kept digging for any kind of information about this film, including production notes, behind-the-scenes information, history, story, analysis, anecdotes, etc. Whenever I had a chance, I'd like to remind you of the fact that it was way before easy information access, the internet era. After all, this movie is about not only a slightly fish-out-of-water heroine's adventurous journey of regaining self-rediscovery, confidence, and self-esteem by taking a chance, but also by demonstrating her instinct, courage, bravery, action with kindness, and cooperation from her friends. She would learn pros and cons of life lessons, sometimes in a cauldron-risk hard way. She was eventually rewarded something humanely valuable at the end while evolving her mission, 
to find true love, as well as saving the Pope and ensuring world peace. What a Big Bang combo! Equally, this movie would also be interpreted as a classic girl-meets-boy love story. It gave me hope, a dream, and a reason to take an action inspired by Goldie's ever-sparkling, American, optimistic smile spilling over the planet. Furthermore, this film taught me not only about American values, culture, and way of life, but also the important and acceptance of lust for simple kindness and affection. This fact cannot be overemphasized, that I absolutely felt that foul play must have played a huge role in leading me to an uncharted, ineluctable, fateful journey for my lifelong destiny. I still remember vividly that I was on a cloud nine when I actually visited those locations, such as Golden Gate Bridge, Presidio, Black Point area, Market Street, City Hall, Opera House, etc., in San Francisco for the first time in 1983. Yes, coincidentally, Frisco was the first town I landed in to go exploring. Every moment has been bonus to me since I was given a tremendous opportunity to come to the U.S., after all these years, the film still evoked a similar, wondrous exultation with deep emotional sensation, just as when I first encountered it in that small theater in Tokyo. As my heart is pounding with butterfly-tingling sensation, this movie lifts my spirit upward into the sky, and it still helps me keep going, as if I were prancing around and crushing through cumulonimbus clouds and reaching to the sun. I now can afford some mental margin to spare as I look back. Breaking up with my girlfriend back then turned out to be a fortunate thing. By the way, I unexpectedly encountered that ex-sweetheart a few years ago when I attended a small high school reunion gathering in Tokyo. She was happily married with two kids. I was afraid that the reunion would be a recipe for disaster type. It was strange, uncomfortable, tense and awkward on my part in the beginning. However, it turned out that we ended up having a very nice, civil, rather pleasant, friendly conversation, including talking about how to look after sick aging parents and how to improve the effectiveness of the medical care system. We also talked about the particular cafe we used to go to together after school near the train station, which is now a ramen noodle shop. In a way, it was a surreal, out-of-body experience, as if time warped instantly. I guess time medicine did finally work. Evidently, life is not always rosy. I have been divorced twice. Life is constant repetition of ups and downs, twists and turns. Nevertheless, jaunty optimism is crucial in life. To me, this is a once-in-your-lifetime type of childlike innocence, imaginative, super-creative film, potentiating a positive heart and soul, a consolidation of energy drink booster, healthy, vigorous supplement, security blanket, cognitive therapy, and mental amulet to heal my chronicle back pain. Unquestionably, this movie with Colin's incredible fecundity and creative vision is a true gift I unconditionally embrace, which is forever subtly giving me the encouragement to roll with life's challenges. Having reached the pinnacle of understanding peace of mind and happiness, I came to the realization that movies are such a powerful medium. This film is living proof since it became my true emotional Bible and led me eventually into pursuing my career in the entertainment industry. Finally, 
as if all the planets were aligned. New Art Theater, where the theater scene in the early part of the story was filmed, the scene Bob, Scotty, Scott was killed in foul play, is only a few minutes away from my apartment in West Los Angeles. Every time I drive by that theater on Santa Monica Boulevard, near the 405 freeway, it brings back nostalgic, fond memories of when I first saw the movie. But it also makes me feel that I'm certainly alive and enjoying life in America. I'm able to manage going back and forth between illusion and reality in a more practical manner. And I have to be ready to take a change again into another uncharted universe as my magical mystery tour continues. Thank you very much for taking the time to read this totally bizarre, lengthy review until the very end. I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.